Okay, let's get going. The church. We are back in this little series, working through some of the book of Acts tonight. We're going to move out of order again and not because we, we weren't trying to go left or right anyhow. So we're no pretense that we're doing some sort of audio commentary on the Acts of the Apostles. So we're kind of moving out of order to pick up some themes, although we are, we are going to land on uh, close to where we were on the, on chronologically. Last week was Ananias and Sapphira, and for the, the cause that I really wanted to get into be, because of the liturgical reading of the church at large that Sunday, the reading was that moment where James and John say to Jesus, shall we call down fire on them? And that was just too similar to the Ananias and Sapphira story to miss that chance as far as I was concerned. That means we skipped a little bit in four we're going to get back into tonight. But to get us there, I really want to work on another thought. Um, something that I, I have been impressed with as I've reworked the book of Acts. Um, I'm trying not to read into the church this time. I'm trying to let the church speak to me differently. And what I mean by read in is I've been reading Acts my entire life. And when you come up in Pentecostal circles, Acts is your touchstone book. And I think it's probably more popular than the Gospels, unfortunately. But um, you get a lot of Acts. But you get it through the lens of Holy Ghost fire or Holy Ghost baptism. And so when you talk about the church in those kind of environments, it's all about power. It's all about um, authority. It's all about healings and miracles and gifts and, 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 and um, salvations. And there's not a lot of talk about church development. It's not a lot of talk about the church on this sort of meandering path that sometimes she's healthy and sometimes her ideas aren't so great. So I've been trying to read and not read into or, or, or try to act like this, we're supposed to mirror this church, but just to let the, the, the little things in this speak to me. Because I've hit, I've hit the mountain peaks in my life of Acts. Like I knew where, what each chapter's big point was. Like what's the salient point of Acts 5, Acts 6, Acts... In fact, that's how I used to study the Bible, so that I always had something to say. For a long time, I would look at a book and go, what's the number one thing to talk about in Acts 7? What's the number one thing to talk about in Acts 8? What's the number one thing? That way you could always kind of run your chronology, uh, chronological order. So I'm not doing that. I really just want to say, I really want to let the Holy Spirit speak to me little things in the text that I've missed before and say, how would that apply? If I didn't know the book of Acts, I didn't know the church history, I didn't know where this thing's going, and I was just reading this for the first time going, what's this say to me? What's that say to me? Then what would I get? And I originally tonight was going to subtitle this something else um, because, but this kind of popped at me all day long and as the Tuesday's the final day to land on these. So I can work on this all week. Then Tuesday it's like, okay, you got to get your feet on the ground on this lesson and really be there. And so I originally wanted to just tackle the idea of changing the world because that's a big thing in the church, especially in young, like youth groups and conferences and everything is like, we're trying to create people that go out and change the world. And man, that's a lot to ask anybody, right? Like, welcome to the church where we're going to turn you into someone who goes and changes the world. And a lot of us, that's way too big for us. We have trouble changing our, we, we don't even change our mind, you know, much less go change the world. And so asking people to change the world don't know how to change their mind. And I'm not just being clever there. Repentance is the key to Christianity. You're asking people to change the world, don't know how to repent. So if you can't change your mind, forget about changing your world, all right? So 
I want to talk about changing the world, but I don't want to make it the whole centerpiece, although that's where we'll come out of the gate with. Instead, I want to subtitle it, The Church, A Body Full of Nobodies, because we are a body. We're not an organization. I mean, look around. We're not an organization, that's for sure. We're not organized, but we're an organism of people living and breathing and laughing and crying and sharing and praying over one another and believing in each other, challenging each other. That's what an organism is. It's something that moves. It doesn't, we're not just some lump that lays here until we get to heaven. And when, when that's what the church is, it doesn't do much for its community. And frankly, I don't even want to go. And I love the church, but I don't want to go to a place where all we're doing is just trying to just kind of hang out till we get to go to heaven. Who wants that? But an organism laughs and cries and celebrates and, and feels. Laugh when they laugh. Cry when they cry. As Paul said. Why? Because that's what an, organ, an organism does. If I hurt my hand, it's my hand that hurts, but my whole body gets affected by that. You ever had a, you ever had a sore tooth? It's like the worst of shutting the rest of your body down. Like nothing else really functions properly because that molar is in bad shape. And it's, it's tiny, it's like maybe even microscopic, but the rest of the body just refuses to participate. And in some ways that's, that's an organism of great definition in some ways of what the church does look like. And, and when we talk about the human body, we just talk about the big elements, um, the things that make us what we are as opposed to an animal what we don't have versus what we do have. But sometimes we give no credence to the little things. That's what this message is. It's to give a little bit of credence to the little things that make the organism actually work instead of just celebrating the big things. Let's take care of that world-changing part first, though, because this is kind of out of the gate, a theme that we want to work off of and back to tonight, and it's this thought. The church is not called to change the world. The church is called to live out the world changed in Christ. I don't just want it to be some pithy, clever statement. So let me work on it. I don't believe that you as a believer in Christ are called by God to go change the world. And I don't believe that the church's mandate on planet earth is to change the world. Because I don't believe it was Jesus's mandate on the earth to change the world. And we're followers of Jesus. Jesus did not come preaching world change. He come preaching the kingdom. What's the difference? World change is where what is here transforms into something it's not. The kingdom is a whole new way of doing things. Jesus did not come and say, the kingdom is at hand. Let's straighten this place up. Let's make the empire better. Let's elevate everyone to the same level. Let's bring down the systems. No, he come preaching the kingdom as an entirely different way of doing things. And I like to think of it this way. If the kingdom is at hand, by the way, John the Baptist preached that and Jesus preached that. And they, they used the literal, they used an allegory, but I, I got to imagine their hand actually came out when they preached it. The kingdom is at hand. If something's at hand, how close is it? Close enough to grasp. Repent is a mind change. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. Not repent because someday God's bringing the kingdom. No, repent, you can have it. Let me ask you, what do you have to do to have it? Repent. What's repent? Change your mind. How close are you to a kingdom change? You're one mind change away. 
So when Jesus comes and says, repent, the kingdom is at hand, he's saying, hey, if you change your mind about God, change your mind about the way this thing works, you could start to walk into the kingdom. Not every aspect, but you could start to lay hold of what the kingdom looks like. That's why I say the church is not called to change the world. The church is called to live out the world that's been changed in Christ because Christ has changed everything by putting his kingdom here. And it looks so different than the way the world thinks. And it's so different from the way the world responds that I think if we miss the kingdom mandate, which is not to go spread the kingdom because Jesus spreads the kingdom without you. But he can't make us live the kingdom out. That's up to us. And so as we live it out, that's the closest we get to changing the world. And I want to show you that I think that actually is a way to change the world, air quotes. It is a way to change the world, but maybe not in the way we were told we were supposed to do. Because if we think our job is to change the world, we're going to want to change the way they live. And how do we do that quickly? change their laws, change their laws so that they can't do this and they got to do that. And the church has tried that business. And what, what happens is that we think it's our responsibility to raise the moral tide of society, make people live better. How do we do that? Make some things illegal for them to do, because if they weren't doing them, the world would be better. Make some things mandatory for people to do, because if they were doing them, the world would be better. And because we've mandated some things and we've made some things illegal, we think that we can change the world through law, through justice systems, through constitutions and whatever. And again, I don't believe it's our role to play on the earth to force moralities on people legislatively or any other way in order to see them change. Because I mean, if you realize in some respects, all you've got people to do is change how they act. You haven't got people to change what they are. And people will change how they act as long as they can stay legal sometimes or not get arrested. And if that's the world we want to live in, then we don't have a world that's actually been changed. We have a world that's been influenced by policy. I think the kingdom's way better than this. Rather, living out the fact that Christ has changed our world, we live out of that, and that's the role of the church. And therefore, we're going to look different. Now, when we live that out, some things are going to get flipped because we're gonna answer differently. We're gonna respond differently. And I think that when we live that out, that will show up. So let me show you a story from Acts 17. I wanna read the first seven verses. Paul and Silas are on sort of a ministry tour. They pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they come to Thessalonica, and there's a synagogue of the Jews. So this is their old territory right here. Synagogue of the Jews is where these guys came up Jewish. So they keep stopping off in these synagogues probably hitting them on the Sabbath, coming in on Saturday, setting through scripture reading, going through the, all of the ceremonies of Judaism, but they keep sharing Jesus with their Jewish brothers. They keep saying, hey, we found him, that one we've all prayed about, that one we prophesied about. We found him and his name is Jesus. Paul, as his custom was, went into them. By the way, this is Paul sharing with Jesus, sharing a custom Jesus shared. Jesus went to synagogue. Paul went to synagogue. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's Old Testament, by the way. Paul doesn't have the New Testament. Paul's reasoning with them in their scriptures, their Torah, their prophets. He explains and demonstrates 
that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So in a nutshell, he picks up the Torah and he says, let me show you the scriptures that you were raised on. And I'm going to prove to you that those scriptures are talking about the Jesus that I claim is the Christ. Here's why I think he's the Christ. It's one pile of intellect versus another pile of intellect. Okay, that's all. That's what it is. They both know the same scriptures, but Paul's going, here's how you read them. Here's how I read them. This is just sort of common debate. And so this is what you think, this is what I think. This is what you, so for three weeks he does this, back and forth, this volley back and forth in the text. Four. And some of them were persuaded, because that's what happens when you argue and, and when you lay out a case. Some people are persuaded. A great multitude of devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And so this kind of speaks for itself, but don't rush past the idea that the, the author, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, close friend of the apostle Paul, the writer of the book of Acts tells you in the fifth verse that those who vehemently opposed Paul and Silas's message the most were the Jews. Who's Paul preaching to? His own Jewish brothers in their synagogue from their scriptures that this is the guy you've been looking for and you've rejected him anyway. And so this is a religious establishment that is turning against Paul and the religious establishment goes out and takes some evil men from the marketplace and gathers a mob. These guys in the marketplace that are gathering as a mob are not Jewish and they are not in the synagogue. They're just dudes out here in the market. They get convinced to get mad about something they don't even understand. We've got ourselves a chaos brewing in Acts 17. Six, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So they don't find Paul and Silas, but instead they drag the owner of the home, Jason, out. But where do they take him? They take him in front of the rulers of the city. And now we've brought in empire, Romans, and Gentiles into the middle of this chaos. And, what, and, and so when they bring them before them, they make two important statements for purposes of this lesson. One, these have turned the world upside down. Two, they are decreeing that there's another king and his name is Jesus. This final decree, by the way, is to make Christianity illegal in the empire because only Caesar can be king. So by declaring that there's another king, you've now broken the law of the land. Rome could handle a lot of things. Rome was multicultural. Rome was open to all kinds of ideas, sexuality, um, lifestyle. Rome couldn't have cared less. The basic rule, you could have whatever religion you wanted. You could serve all the gods you wanted. Basic rule was Caesar is the son of God. You know, keep your mouth off of that. We're good to go. Christianity ran into a problem real fast. <laughs> really fast. Like about as quickly as they could open their mouths, Christianity was on the outside because Christianity went, no. Caesar's not the son of God. We know the son of God. His name is Jesus. He is king. We got subversion on two fronts. We've got the religious world that doesn't want anything to do with Paul and Silas because they're using their own text to try to establish that Jesus is king. We've got the Roman world over here who will not put up with you saying anybody but Caesar is king. So that leads us to the other statement. These turn the world upside down. Third line. 
Had they actually turned the world upside down? No, but they had turned this world upside down. They had turned the world of the Judaism of that place, Thessalonica, upside down. They had turned the, the Roman Empire of that place upside down. There was a, there is a way to see that things are not what they used to be. Think of it this way. From the perspective of religion, Paul turned the world upside down. I say this in regards to mindsets and in the way of looking at things because Paul preached a resurrected Christ as king. And that is upside down for the religious world because that would mean that the Savior has come. If the Savior has come, then that means their salvation is no longer in their stuff. Temple worship, lamb sacrifice, feast observances. If the Savior's here, everything has to change. You can't keep romancing the shadow once the substance walks into the room. Once the substance is here, the other stuff has to vanish. And so it's a scandal to present Christ in this way. That's an upside down for them. We're not to take their statement. And here's where I've made this mistake in my life. And this is what I want to address tonight for you. We are not to take their statement as a mandate. We are to take their statement as a confession. And what I mean by that is I read Acts 17 for a long time and said, these early apostles turned the world upside down. So what do you think the church is supposed to do? The early church was turning the world upside down. We're supposed to be turning the world upside down. And for many years, I had my own world changer verse right here. This was my world changer verse because they went in there and they changed the world. They turned it upside down. But I hope you can see that this is not a command of scripture that what the church is supposed to do is turn the world upside down. This was a statement from people whose religion had been turned over. And their statement is not for me to read into this scripture and go, the Bible says we're supposed to turn the world upside down. No, the Bible says that a bunch of really angry religious people accused Paul and Silas of turning their world upside down. Rick White, my dad, would have said it this way in ministry when I was a kid coming up in the church. They got uh, this, I don't even know what this means, but I heard it so many times that I always see it in my head. They got their apple cart turned over. I don't know what it means, but as a kid, that meant you had a bunch of apples on a cart and somebody walked over and tipped them over and the apples fell on the ground. I saw that 10,000 times in my head because my dad said it at least 10,000 times in church when I was growing up. He goes, I just said that. He goes, he goes, and if that turns your apple cart over, he goes, I'll help you pick up your apples. Which I always never saw him help anyone pick up their apples. So I always wondered what that meant. But I think my dad's point was it was just a Southeast Missouri way of saying, did I just turn your world upside down? <laughs> and the answer in some cases is yes, you did. Cause I've had my world turned upside down. And what that means is something gets, comes at me that I didn't see coming at me. I didn't think that through. I didn't expect that. In a way, aren't you glad you've had your world turned upside down a couple times? I've had it turned upside down with the, with the gospel. I, mean, I thought I had a bunch of stuff figured out and I had my world turned upside down. Like I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. I love that that keeps happening. I still have my world turned upside down. Not my whole world. Like not my whole world gets turned upside down. Not my marriage and my kids and my house and my body, but my little worlds. My world built around what I think about this concept. My world built around what I think about that idea. That gets flipped all the time. Now, in some way, then, yes, we are world changers, but not truthfully under mandate, not under obligation, but as a result of declaring Jesus to be king. 
And when you do that, you're going to turn somebody's world upside down. But I also think it's more important that you realize yours needs turned upside down more than your neighbor's does. And I think that's the key. What I've learned is if Paul White is having some things in his world turned upside down, he's a better version of Paul White. I'm a less version of myself. I know this for a fact. I'm a less version of myself the longer I go between having something in my life turned upside down. Some theological concept, some preset idea, some notion. If I go too, too long a stretch without something being shaken up, I don't think I'm as good. And, and I don't mean good in the eyes of God. I mean good at what you do or, or at peace with what you do. So don't take this as a command. All right, and let me show you why we don't take in to command. It's easy. To slip into a world changers, and I put quotes around that, and I'm not making fun of the phrase. It's just so familiar. I just want to use it because I spent a lot of years burdened under it, just to be kind of cathartic to say this out loud. I spent years under the burden of world change. It's a lot of burden to put on anybody, but under the burden of, are you changing the world? You better get out of bed today and go change the world. And the only way I got to where I could justify it was, well, I can't change the whole world, but I'll go change somebody's world. Okay, well, that's, a, that's better than not changing any world. Um, but it's a big burden. So I'm, I'm trying to relieve you of that burden because I don't think the church put that on you, and I know the Holy Spirit didn't. I don't think the early church put it on you. I think the church has put it on us. And I think we borrowed it from the world. And I'm going to show you why. It's easy to slip into that mentality when we look at the heroes of the Old Testament. And I'm talking the Moseses and the Davids and the Daniels and the Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's and the Joshua's. If you sat in Sunday school growing up watching them march around walls and run through fiery furnaces and sleep in the same room with hungry lions and not die and knock down giants with rocks and slingshots, you couldn't help but walk out and think, man, what am I doing? You know, I'm just out here riding bikes. David's out here dropping giants. I got to get out here and change the world. So it's easy to start to sort of slip into that. I need to do this. And then there's the giants of the early church. James and John and Peter and all of these spectacular stories. The book of Acts is just alive with them, just bubbling over with the miraculous and the powerful but we can do that with the benefit of hindsight. In other words, we're looking back on them. And, and how many of you know that when we look back on the heroes, we ignore their warts. We ignore the faults. We ignore the darknesses. I mean, people aren't up here talking about David sinning with Bathsheba when they're telling you to go out and kill giants. You know, get out here and slay your giants. Oh, by the way, watch out for your lust, you know, or watch out for letting power eat you up. Or maybe don't isolate yourself from all your friends or the other people that understand you. All the dark things we could talk about can, because heck, who wants to build a conference around watch out for staying home when all the other kings go to battle? Maybe you should go too. We don't build that. It's much better to talk about killing giants and, you know, winning and knocking down walls and all that good stuff. Uh, and why not? Because we're talking about the heroes, but that's a benefit of hindsight. It's why we pick all the good stuff. Within the context of the time, it wasn't so obvious who the heroes were, is my point. It's only obvious who the heroes are looking back. It's never so obvious when you're in it. You know, they say the winners write the history. Well, there's something to that. When you're living it out, you don't know who's going to rise to the top in the, in, the, in the hindsight. The everyday believer, I call this guy the nobody, and I don't do that insultingly. You're going to find this is a pretty sweet spot right here, by the way. But the everyday believer, the nobody, is the essence of the church. 
And I am not up here to give you a motivational speech and try and say, hey, if you don't feel like a somebody, that's okay. You're a, you are a somebody. The more you realize you're a nobody. No, I want to show it to you in the book of Acts. So I actually think there's this undercurrent in the book of Acts that if we could get out of, high, out of this 30,000 foot view of looking into the book of Acts as if they have this, everything figured out, and we could kind of put our boots on the ground in the middle of it and realize this little salient truth. You don't know who the heroes are when you're in the middle of the story, right? You just know people's names. You don't realize which ones kind of rise above the top. So as you're writing the story, as you're in the middle of the story, it looks differently. So if I were to say to you, pick the heroes of the book of Acts, it's easy to land on Peter, John, he's in there because he's big in Acts 4, uh, maybe Stephen, maybe Philip talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then you get into Peter's story, which takes up about a third of the book. And then all of a sudden, Peter just kind of vanishes and boom, here comes Paul. Saul turns to Paul and the story runs away. And our scholars will tell you it runs away because Luke's his buddy and Luke's writing about Paul. And so the pronouns all shift. Luke starts saying us. So the guy running with Paul's writing Paul's story. And so, but the heroes kind of run to the top of the page in the book of Acts. And we tend to then sort of think that that's how to change the world is this, this sort of heroic. I want to show you something else. Look at Acts 4. This is right before our Ananias and Sapphira passage. In fact, when we get to 37, the next verse would be, Ananias and Sapphira, all right? And we did that last week. So here's what leads into that. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I like that last sentence. Great grace was upon them all. Grace is undeserved. This is the author's way of saying that even though they were doing all of this stuff, none of that really matters. In the end, they realized that their salvation was a grace act, not a works act. Great grace was upon them all, 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. This is the moment where the church decides in Jerusalem to sell everything that they own and create a common fund. This would be what we would call communal living. And for those who think the church should go back, this is the example I always use for people who say the church should be more like the book of Acts. I say, oh, are you, are you willing to sign up for the last few verses of chapter four? Because that means you sell your cars, you sell your house, you sell your land, you go empty your checking account, we'll have a meeting next week and we all open a joint account and you put it all in the middle and everyone comes in and we pray about how much you should get. So which part of the church of the book of Acts are you ready to hang your uh, claim on that they are the, the best version? I'm not cutting down what they did. That I actually think they had a really specific reason for doing this. One, if you'll let me jump in the weeds here for a second, because I want to clear this up. One, this is an eschatological thing. They were told to stay in Jerusalem and they were told that your generation shall not pass away. The temple's coming down. The son of man's going to come riding on the clouds and you're going to see this in your lifetime. And they were so convinced that that was going to happen quickly 
that I don't believe that the Christians in Jerusalem thought only owning anything did you any good because you weren't going to be there for it. You, it wasn't going to be worth anything anyway. The Romans were about to come and take everything. They were going to burn the temple down, which meant they were probably going to burn your houses down. Why keep, why let the Romans have it when you could support one another in the final days of the earth? If you truly thought that your way of life was going to end possibly in the next few weeks, would you care about your assets? And that's the church at Jerusalem. Because we don't ever see them do this again when they leave Jerusalem. By the time they go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the Gentiles, we do not see communal living. In fact, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he's taken up offerings because he's got broke people in his church. And he's got rich people in his church. At the end of 1 Timothy, he's got some people so rich at the end of his life that he actually says to them, listen, you need to help some people. Some of you guys got a lot and you need to help some people. So they're not communal living anymore by the end of 1 Timothy. So that doesn't mean that this is stupid. It just means it's, it's time bound, which also tells me that there are some things we do in the church that are time bound, that are not timeless. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It might mean they're exactly what your city needs. It might mean they're exactly what your community needs or what the people in the pew need. So it's the wrong idea to try to go build a church that looks like someone else when what you should really do is build a church that looks like the people in the church because it's the people in the church that needed this. You know why they didn't codify this, turn this into a law? First of all, because they came out of law and they didn't believe you could put law for righteousness. Secondly, because this isn't a mandate by the Holy Spirit that future churches should sell all their stuff, put it in a pile, then live out of it. But they also were not so strict against that sort of thing that they would reject it if it was a need. And so this is why I think offerings ought to be spirit-inspired. And when they're spirit-inspired, people will give from the spirit. When they're legalistically inspired, they become an albatross around your neck. They become a burden. I have to give. I have to give. If I don't give, this thing's going under. If we don't give, the doors are going to close. And that kind of pressure then starts to build and mount until we're not giving out of grace anymore. We're giving out of obligation. We're giving out of compulsion. We're giving because we have to. And it's not looking like this. And while I'm not an advocate for communal living, I am an advocate for living in the exact way the community needs the church to live. And that seems to be what's happening from an eschatological standpoint in Acts 4. It's also, here we're in the weeds again, it's also an allegory of sorts, is that under grace, nothing's yours. It's not yours, it's his. And so if he instructs you to give, you don't say, but I already gave 10%. Instead, you give. And you don't look at it as yours. You look at it as common. The Father told me to give, I give. It's not a matter of I've already gave it. I already gave it the office. No, I've given as a response to what the Holy Spirit would have for me. All right, read the next two. I'm going to head you for the end here. And Joseph, that's a name that translates in the earlier Greek as Joseph, who's also named Barnabas by the apostles. Interesting parenthetical here, which is translated son of encouragement. I'm going to get into why that's interesting. A Levite of the country of Cyprus having land, which is also odd because Levites don't own land in the Old Testament. So we're already moving outside the old Torah parameters of Judaism into a different world because Levites were not possessors of land. And so we're already seeing the stretch of the way the Torah is being interpreted. He sold it. He brought the money. He laid it at the apostles' feet. All right. Barnabas, Hebrew, son of a prophet. Where we, in the English, it's actually in the Greek, Barnaby, and then Barney. 
would be the word that we might translate it. Big purple dinosaur. Which is what that means in the Hebrew. <laughs> Barnabas, big purple dinosaur. The apostles name him Barnabas. His birth name is Joseph. Here's why I said that was an interesting parathetical. Because they claim it means son of encouragement. I put they claim because it's not Greek. There's no, there's no literary reference in the known world that Barnabas in the Greek means son of encouragement or son of consolation. It means they decided to call him son of encouragement, son of consolation. They named him Barnabas, Barney, and decided in our world, Barney means son of consolation, son of encouragement. And so they're not going, they're not going by the book. But what they're doing is elevating sort of to this high station, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And I like that Luke contrasts him immediately with Ananias and Sapphira because the next chapter, you know, I didn't put the screen up, but listen to how four just rolls into five. Listen to the end of four. Having land, he sold it. He brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Five one. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. So because we have a chapter break, we miss what Luke's doing. What Luke's actually doing is there was a guy named Barnabas who they loved so much they called him son of a consolation. He sold his land and gave him the proceeds. But then there was a husband and wife who sold the land and lied about the proceeds. And what Luke is doing is showing you selflessness compared to selfishness. And both are in the early church at the same time. And the story, of course, of Ananias and Sapphira, dark turn. We went down there last week. But ultimately, it's this selfishness and versus selflessness. The sad part is Ananias and Sapphira get way more time in the church than Barnabas. Because we're really infatuated with the wicked and the evil and the lying. And no one gets excited about the son of encouragement. The point of this message tonight is that the church is a body full of nobodies the grease that makes the wheel turn is not the Apostle Paul. It's not Peter. It's not James. It's not John. It's Barnabas. And they knew it. From the earliest iteration, they realized that the thing that makes this work is the, son of, the sons of encouragement. It's the people who do the things that make the church what they are. And that the church is built around that. It's made up of that. Let me give you an example of Barnabas in action. Look at Acts 9. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. By the way, Saul just got saved. Just had his road to Damascus experience. He's a wild-eyed killer. Air quotes. He doesn't actually kill anybody by his own hand, but he authorizes the death of Christians. So he's a killer for all intents and purposes. Why would you trust him? He's subversive. He's out here to kill us. So he gets saved, meets Christ, and immediately starts going out to preach. And no one trusts him. He comes to Jerusalem. He tries to join the disciples. They don't want him on their team because they're all afraid of him. And they didn't believe he was a disciple. I thought you could tell Christians by looking at them. Good luck with that. The church of the book of Acts disagreed with that whole, you'll know a Christian by their t-shirt idea. You'll know a Christian by their bumper sticker. You'll know a Christian by the way they vote. Tell that when Saul of Tarsus walked into the room that you can tell who a Christian is. Barnabas took him. Good old Barnabas. There he is. Just pops up all of a sudden here. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Way to go, Barnabas. This is the beginning of saving the church. 
we're going to desperately need the Apostle Paul. If you don't think so, you haven't read the whole New Testament. He's going to answer more about righteousness and grace and justification than any other single writer. And Barnabas is the one that saves him. 28. So he was with him at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Now, Paul's a wild brand, man. Watch. He speaks boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. He disputed the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. And when his brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, put him on a boat, sent him to Tarsus. So they get him out of there. This actually, for 13 years, Paul vanishes from the book of Acts. He's too hot to handle. We need him gone. We don't need this crazy guy in our life. That's nine, jump to 11. News of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent out Barnabas. Every time they need something done, who do they send? Son of encouragement. Let's go get the right guy. This dude knows what's up. They send Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. Every time you see Barnabas, he's, he's, he's glad. He's either glad or he's helping somebody or he's advocating for something beyond him. He's a, he's a hero character as far as I'm concerned in the early church. He, he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. He encouraged them all with the purpose of heart. Continue with the Lord. 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That line right there is never written in the book of Acts about anybody else. Read it again. Not Paul, not Peter, not James, not John. Barnabas. He don't have a book in the New Testament. And there's a really good chance before you walked into this room, you didn't know five things about Barnabas. And you could have wrote half a dissertation at least on, if you could put the rest of them together, on what they contributed to the early church. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Here we go. Because Barnabas knows we got to get this dude back in the church. 13 years banished too long. He's been missing for too long. We need him. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You can actually thank Barnabas for the fact that you call yourself a follower of Christ, a Christian, because he goes and pulls the apostle Paul. Now, hero, my book, Get to Galatians 2, Paul's writing about Barnabas, and he goes, man, even Barnabas, even Barnabas has left me. Even Barnabas got infatuated with the Jews who won't eat with the Gentiles. And he's, he's, I've lost Barnabas. He's went the other way. And I, which lets me know that growth is not a straight line. Sometimes we do a little bit of this on the way. And that's okay. Even the hero like Barnabas. Let's close. Everyone prefers to be Peter, Paul, or John, no one chooses Barnabas. He's simply a helper. Maybe we're so infatuated with the other characters because we think they changed the world, and so should we. But those characters do not exist without the Barnabases of the church, and those characters know it. The church is a body full of nobodies. Thank God we are. All of us together, a little bit of all that matters. So don't worry about going out and changing your world. You may not be the changer of the world. It doesn't make you any less valuable to the call because the call of the church is not to change the world. The call of most of us is to help. We're to help somebody do something. We're to help. I try to help you be a little more excited about Jesus. Maybe help you be a little freer. 
maybe help you to understand your faith a little better. I'm just helping you. I'm not making you. And you're helping me. And together, that's what everything on this body of believers is doing. So be released. Be released from a, chain, a mentality of I got to go out here and do something great. Forget that garbage. You don't have to do anything great. You're a follower of Jesus. That's great enough. You are a resurrected man or woman on the earth. That is great enough. Now go live that life. Go live that life and be what you can be in the world in which you are. And if all you are, and I say that with, a, with much due respect, if all you are is the son of encouragement. Well, as far as I'm concerned, he's a good man, full of faith. And they don't say that about Paul. And they don't say that about Peter or James or John. And the world may have forgot about Barnabas, but the early church knew who he was. Because from 30,000 feet, we only look at the heroes. But when there's boots on the ground, you don't know who the heroes are. And you know who the early church thought was the hero? Barnabas. I find that pretty fascinating. So you look at the church landscape and you go, they're doing something great. That's the hero. That's what we want to be. And just realize that you might be walking past 15 Barnabases. And in the end, they're what's going to matter. Because it's a body full of nobodies, not a body with a couple somebodies. Go be a good nobody. That's a pretty good place to land. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for this turning my world upside down business. You keep doing that. I thank you for it. Because my world needs turned upside down. I got a lot of stuff that I think I've got figured out. And then you come along and tip it over. And I'm okay with that. For anyone here tonight, Lord, that's watching, that's listening, that's a part of this journey digitally, or anyone in this room who's had a little bit of their world turned over, that's good. You help us to put the pieces back together and realize that some of those just must turn over. And for all of us who've ever wanted to be Paul and Peter and James and John, and we envied their walk and their message and their miracles. Tonight, Father, was, I think, a message from the Holy Spirit to say, don't pick the wrong heroes. Because at the end of the day, the body of Christ isn't made up of two or three fantastic ones. It's made up of a bunch of nobodies who follow the ultimate nobody. He who emptied himself and became of no reputation, Jesus. And I thank you that we're coming into that knowledge in Jesus' name. Amen.